Chapter Ten of Martin Eden by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten. He stopped to dinner that evening and, much to Ruth's satisfaction, made a favorable impression on her father. They talked about the sea as a career, a subject which Martin had at his finger ends, and Mister Morse remarked afterward that he seemed a very clear-headed young man. In his avoidance of slang and his search after right words, Martin was compelled to talk slowly, which enabled him to find the best thoughts that were in him. He was more at ease than that first night at dinner, nearly a year before, and his shyness and modesty even commended him to Mrs. Morse, who was pleased at his manifest improvement. "'He is the first man that ever drew passing notice from Ruth,' she told her husband. She has been so singularly backward where men are concerned that I have been worried greatly." Mr. Morse looked at his wife curiously. "'You mean to use this young sailor to wake her up?' he questioned. "'I mean that she is not to die an old maid if I can help it,' was the answer. "'If this young Eden can arouse her interest in mankind in general, it will be a good thing.' "'A very good thing,' he commented. But suppose, and we must suppose sometimes, my dear, suppose he arouses her interest too particularly in him. Impossible, Mrs. Morse laughed. She is three years older than he, and besides, it is impossible. Nothing will ever come of it. Trust that to me. And so Martin's role was arranged for him, while he, led on by Arthur and Norman, was meditating an extravagance. They were going out for a ride into the hills Sunday morning on their wheels, which did not interest Martin until he learned that Ruth, too, rode a wheel and was going along. He did not ride nor own a wheel, but if Ruth rode, it was up to him to begin, was his decision. And when he said good night, he stepped in at a cyclery on his way home and spent forty dollars for a wheel. It was more than a month's hard-earned wages, and it reduced his stock of money amazingly. But when he added the hundred dollars he was to receive from the examiner, to the four hundred and twenty dollars that was the least the youth's companion could pay him, he felt that he had reduced the perplexity the unwonted amount of money had caused him. Nor did he mind, in the course of learning to ride the wheel home, the fact that he ruined his suit of clothes. He caught the tailor by telephone that night from Mr. Higginbotham's store and ordered another suit. Then he carried the wheel up the narrow stairway that clung like a fire escape to the rear wall of the building, and when he moved his bed out from the wall, found that there was just space enough in the small room for himself and the wheel. Sunday he had intended to devote to studying for the high school examination, but the pearl-diving article lured him away, and he spent the day in the white-hot fever of recreating the beauty and romance that burned in him. The fact that the examiner of the morning had failed to publish his treasure-hunting article did not dash his spirits. He was at too great a height for that, and having been deaf to a twice-repeated summons, he went without the heavy Sunday dinner with which Mr. Higginbotham invariably graced his table. To Mr. Higginbotham such a dinner was advertisement of his worldly achievement and prosperity, and he honored it by delivering platitudinous sermonettes upon American institutions, and the opportunity said institutions gave to any hard-working man to rise, the rise, in his case, which he pointed out unfailingly, 
being from a grocer's clerk to the ownership of Higginbotham's cash store. Martin Eden looked with a sigh at his unfinished pearl-diving on Monday morning, and took the car down to Oakland to the high school. And when, days later, he applied for the results of his examinations, he learned that he had failed in everything save grammar. "'Your grammar is excellent,' Professor Hilton informed him, staring at him through heavy spectacles. "'But you know nothing, positively nothing, in the other branches. And your United States history is abominable. There is no other word for it. Abominable. I should advise you.' Professor Hilton paused and glared at him, unsympathetic and unimaginative as one of his own test-tubes. He was a professor of physics in the high school, possessor of a large family, a meager salary, and a select fund of parrot-learned knowledge. "'Yes, sir,' Martin said humbly, wishing somehow that the man at the desk in the library was in Professor Hilton's place just then. "'And I should advise you to go back to the grammar school for at least two years. Good day.' Martin was not deeply affected by his failure though he was surprised at Ruth's shocked expression when he told her Professor Hilton's advice. Her disappointment was so evident that he was sorry he had failed, but chiefly so for her sake. "'You see, I was right,' she said. "'You know far more than any of the students entering high school, and yet you couldn't pass the examinations. It is because what education you have is fragmentary, sketchy. You need the discipline of study, such as only skilled teachers can give you.' you must be thoroughly grounded. Professor Hilton is right, and if I were you, I'd go to night school. A year and a half of it might enable you to catch up that additional six months. Besides, that would leave you your days in which to write, or, if you could not make your living by your pen, you would have your days in which to work in some position. But if my days are taken up with work, and my nights with school, when am I going to see you? was Martin's first thought though he refrained from uttering it. Instead, he said, "'It seems so babyish for me to be going to night school. But I wouldn't mind that if I thought it would pay, but I don't think it will pay. I can do the work quicker than they can teach me. It would be a loss of time.' He thought of her, and his desire to have her. "'And I can't afford the time. I haven't the time to spare, in fact. There is so much that is necessary.' She looked at him gently, and he was a brute to oppose her. Physics and chemistry, you can't do them without laboratory study, and you'll find algebra and geometry almost hopeless with instruction. You need the skilled teachers, the specialists in the art of imparting knowledge. He was silent for a minute, casting about for the least vainglorious way in which to express himself. Please don't think I'm bragging, he began. I don't intend it that way at all but I have a feeling that I am what I may call a natural student. I can study by myself. I take to it kindly, like a duck to water. You see yourself what I did with grammar, and I've learned much of other things. You would never dream how much. And I'm only getting started. Wait till I get. He hesitated and assured himself of the pronunciation before he said, Momentum. I'm getting my first real feel of things now. I'm beginning to size up the situation. Please don't say size up, she interrupted, to get a line on things, he hastily amended. That doesn't mean anything in correct English, she objected. He floundered for a fresh start. What I'm driving at is that I'm beginning to get the lay of the land, 
Out of pity she forbore, and he went on. Knowledge seems to me like a chart-room. Whenever I go into the library, I am impressed that way. The part played by teachers is to teach the students the contents of the chart-room in a systematic way. The teachers are guides to the chart-room, that's all. It's not something they have in their own heads. They don't make it up, don't create it. It's all in the chart-room, and they know their way about it. And it's their business to show the place to strangers who might else get lost. Now I don't get lost easily. I have the bump of location. I usually know where I'm at. What's wrong now? Don't say where I'm at. That's right, he said gratefully, where I am. But where am I at? I mean, where am I? Oh, yes, in the chart room. Well, some people— Persons, she corrected. Some persons need guides. Most people do. But I think I can get along without them. I've spent a lot of time in the chart room now, and I'm on the edge of knowing my way about, what charts I want to refer to, what coasts I want to explore. And from the way I line it up, I'll explore a whole lot more quickly by myself. The speed of a fleet, you know, is the speed of the slowest ship, and the speed of the teachers is affected the same way. They can't go any faster than the ruck of their scholars, and I can set a faster pace for myself than they set for a whole schoolroom. He travels the fastest who travels alone, she quoted at him. But I'd travel faster with you just the same, was what he wanted to blurt out, as he caught a vision of a world without end of sunlit spaces and starry voids through which he drifted with her, his arm around her, her pale gold hair blowing about his face. In the same instant he was aware of the pitiful inadequacy of speech. God! if he could so frame words that she could see what he then saw. And he felt the stir in him, like a throw of yearning pain, of the desire to paint these visions that flashed unsummoned on the mirror of his mind. Ah, that was it. He caught at the hem of the secret. It was the very thing that the great writers and master poets did. That was why they were giants. They knew how to express what they thought and felt and saw. Dogs asleep in the sun often whined and barked, but they were unable to tell what they saw that made them whine and bark. He had often wondered what it was. And that was all he was, a dog asleep in the sun. He saw noble and beautiful visions, but he could only whine and bark at Ruth. But he would see sleeping in the sun. He would stand up with open eyes, and he would struggle and toil and learn until— with his eyes unblinded and tongue untied, he could share with her his visioned wealth. Other men had discovered the trick of expression, of making words obedient servitors, and of making combinations of words mean more than the sum of their separate meanings. He was stirred profoundly by the passing glimpse at the secret, and he was again caught up in the vision of sunlit spaces and starry voids, until it came to him that it was very quiet and he saw Ruth regarding him with an amused expression and a smile in her eyes. "'I have had a great visioning,' he said, and at the sound of his words in his own ears his heart gave a leap. Where had those words come from? They had adequately expressed the pause his vision had put in the conversation. It was a miracle. Never had he so loftily framed a lofty thought. But never had he attempted to frame lofty thoughts in words. That was it. That explained it. He had never tried. But Swinburne had, and Tennyson, and Kipling, and all the other poets. 
His mind flashed on to his pearl-diving. He had never dared the big things, the spirit of the beauty that was a fire in him. That article would be a different thing when he was done with it. He was appalled by the vastness of the beauty that rightfully belonged in it, and again his mind flashed and dared, and he demanded of himself why he could not chant that beauty in noble verse as the great poets did. And there was all the mysterious delight and spiritual wonder of his love for Ruth. Why could he not chant that, too, as the poets did? They had sung of love, so would he. By God! And in his frightened ears he heard his exclamation echoing. Carried away, he had breathed it aloud. The blood surged into his face, wave upon wave, mastering the bronze of it, till the blush of shame flaunted itself from collar-rim to the roots of his hair. I—I—I I, I beg your pardon, he stammered. I was thinking. It sounded as if you were praying, she said bravely, but she felt herself inside to be withering and shrinking. It was the first time she had heard an oath from the lips of a man she knew, and she was shocked, not merely as a matter of principle and training, but shocked in spirit by this rough blast of life in the garden of her sheltered maidenhood. But she forgave, and with surprise at the ease of her forgiveness. Somehow it was not so difficult to forgive him anything. He had not had a chance to be as other men, and he was trying so hard, and succeeding, too. It never entered her head that there could be any other reason for her being kindly disposed toward him. She was tenderly disposed toward him, but she did not know it. She had no way of knowing it. The placid poise of twenty-four years without a single love affair did not fit her with a keen perception of her own feelings, and she who had never warmed to actual love was unaware that she was warming now. End of chapter 10